Good morning and Happy New Year to all. Would you open your Bibles now to Psalm 113? For those of you who are wondering where the book of Acts went, still in the Bible, we'll be looking at it. I just have a little more time over the holidays to think about stuff, and I do think about a lot of stuff. And what I've been thinking about a lot lately is the presence of God, so we're going to take a uh, look at that this week. But it is connected with what's coming in the book of Acts, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. One correction in your outline. Point number one uh, says the God who is with present, if you put an S on it, that would be Santa Claus. (laughs) But it should be the God who is present with us, okay? Point number one, the outline should be the God who is present with us. And so today, we're going to take a look at the presence of God um, as we find it revealed to us in Scripture. And there is a great deal the Bible does say about God's presence. I think I was captured by that recently when reading through Genesis particularly the narratives about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the overriding theme that you see in, in those narratives is God is present with the patriarch. He is with them. God is a with us kind of God. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading from Psalm 113. We will read the whole psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her joyous. Mother of children, praise the Lord. Then one other passage, if you'll... Turn now to Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today that as we look at this vast uh, theme in Scripture about the presence of God, that you, by your Spirit, would guide us as we think about these things together as they are rooted in your revelation, the Holy Scriptures. And we do pray that as we think about these things, your Spirit would encourage us and lift us up. Your Spirit would show us the relevance, the immediate relevance of this truth. And that we today would walk out of here rejoicing 
because you are God with us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when we think about the presence of God, then of course we have to first of all think, who is the God we are speaking of? What do we mean by the presence of God? And the God we are speaking of is a, a God who engages us um, in our lives almost daily. But who is this God? Who is the God whose utter sufficiency as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit issues in his creative, reconciling, and perfecting works toward his creation? Who is this God? And so there are certain foundations I think we need to think about quickly before we think about the immediate application of living in the presence of God. And that is what is the foundation of the presence of God. And it rests in the attribute of the aseity of God. That is, when we talk about aseity, we are indicating something true about God's identity. Um, and so God is, as we know from Scripture, um, objective. Um, he makes himself understandable and nameable to us through revelation, but um, he is a God who is utterly and completely uh, independent. Um, let me even go further with that in talking about that. You noticed in the passages we read that there was an emphasis upon God being high and lifted up, about his glory being above the heavens. And so the Bible often uses spatial terms to talk about the nature of God, that God is transcendent. That he is above all, he is over, he is a, an other kind of being uh, than we are. God is um, a being unto himself. Um, that is, let me say it this way, this is difficult to talk about because we don't talk about it enough, but God is self-sufficient and he requires nothing outside of himself. And he lives in total divine self-sufficiency. God is independent, self-existent, fully self-sufficient. God is from himself. He is underived. He is being itself. We say that as manifest eternally in the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is the one who already has in himself everything which would have to be the object of his creation in causation. In other words, the Lord in terms of his being is uncaused. He is not dependent on any external person, principle, or reality for his existence. He is say that is he is from himself God is a being who is from himself uh, and so when you understand that you ask yourself the question if God is entirely self-sufficient God has no sense of need God needs nothing outside of himself to be utterly deliriously happy he could spend the rest of eternity contemplating his own being and self. Why would a God like that ever move out of himself and do anything for us? Why would this God ever create? Why would he make us in his image? Why would he create the universe? Why would he make a world? If God in and of himself is 
by the definition of aseity, independent by anything outside of himself, non-contingent upon anything we could say or do, why create us in the first place? Why does he desire, this is the question I'm asking, why does he desire to dwell with his people who are poor, who are broken, who are needy, who are sinful? Why would a God who is completely, deliriously, I guess I could say, uh, that's almost sacrilegious, but happy in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwelling together as Trinity, why would that God ever desire to create or make a world or deal with this? I think about things like that. Uh, sometimes it keeps me up at night. Why would God do that? Um, and so God, both in his inner being and in his gracious turn to that which is not God, it is as Father, Son, and Spirit of God is of himself utterly free and full in total uh, life. Uh, grounded, he grounds himself, he gives himself as the self-existent Lord of grace. How does the Trinitarian teaching fill out the notion of God's aseity? We said that God is transcendent. He's far and above, and yet he comes down to dwell with us, meaning God is imminent, spell with an A, not an I. God is imminent, near us. He's distant from us in terms of his being, and yet he's close and near to us. He is imminent as well as transcendent. But where does that imminence come from? Where does it come from? Because God in his being is self-sufficient and is the fountain of life. In the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead are constantly giving of themselves to one another, constantly pouring out of themselves into each other. And so creation and the creature and the universe and the world is simply the overflow of God's desire to give of himself and life to that which is not God. I know that's deep and heady probably could be better said but that's the best I can say it today I've been reading this stuff for two weeks and I'm trying to grasp it and it's like grasping smoke Herman Bovink said that mystery is the lifeblood of theology what an understatement there's a mystery here but why would would a God who is blessed and blissful move out of himself because his very nature is proven by the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to pour himself out into each member of the Trinity, each doing the dance called perichoresis. That is the idea of uh, moving around together in the dance. Why does God create? What moves him to do that is to create a world and, and creatures themselves who can enter into the dance, so to speak. It is God's heart to move out of himself, who's perfectly content in himself, to embrace a creation that is uh, beautiful and set apart. Are you with me so far? Have I totally lost you? Are you getting it? A little nod would help. I can't see your faces, okay? All right. These are important things. Because otherwise, we got nowhere to go if we don't deal with these up front. And I could deal with these up front for a whole lot longer. But let me sort of summarize what I just said to you. Um, in terms of divine uh, self-existent, 
The being of God is apart uh, from the relation to creatures. Um, the movement of God's triune life has its perfection in and of itself. It is utterly sufficient to itself. But this perfect movement is not self-enclosed or self-revolving. Okay? In its perfection, it is a movement of self-gift in which the complete love of the Father, Son, and Spirit communicates itself outside of itself, creating and sustaining a further object of love. Of himself, God is gracious. Since then, God, who is good and more than good, did not find satisfaction in self-contemplation, but in, ex in exceeding goodness, which certain things to come into existence which would enjoy his benefits and share in his goodness he brought everything out of nothing into being and created them and God is from himself not in absolute independence but in his exceeding goodness to illustrate in John 5:26, as the father has life in himself so he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And when we are united to his Son, we have life in ourselves. Eternal life. A life that is not just duration, but a different kind of life. And so God is the fountain of all being. He is the fountain of all love. He is the fountain of all giving. And he created a world to give that to the creature. So let's talk about then the rest of the message and I'm going to get to the next two points but they will pass by and I may not mention them by name but you're getting them and if you can't figure it out and you're really frustrated ask me later but uh, you're going to get it first God is near to us because he is high and above us God is imminent because he is transcendent the Lord is in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. But to understand God in full, we must recognize that his drawing near to creation stems from his being distinct from creation. We are not pantheists. We are not pantheists. We do not believe God is in all. There is a distinction between the creation God has made and God himself. He is the creator. He is transcendent over his creation. He is distinct from it. In other words, there is no deficiency in God that creation itself satisfies. The Lord doesn't relate to this world because he lacks something within himself. I heard preachers say this when I was a child, that the reason why God made man and created the earth was because he was lonely. Can you believe somebody said that? I mean, how bonehead can you be to make a statement like that? Uh, God is perfectly blissful in and of himself. God draws near to us out of the abundance of who he is in himself. God's transcendence distinguishes him from the created order and puts things in their right perspective. God does not come to us needing and wanting, but rather comes to revive the spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. It is the holy and righteous one above who restores the broken and needy above. If, if you ever let this really take residence in your heart, it will blow the top of your head off. It is amazing the God with whom we have to do even pays attention to us. 
even notices, takes notice of the number of hairs on our head, which is easier for him to count for me now. But uh, the Bible emphasizes, it's never hard for God, nothing is too hard for him. The Bible emphasizes God's manifest presence, not only just his omnipresence. There is a difference between saying God is everywhere and God is here, okay? There's a difference between saying God is everywhere and God is here. And so the Bible emphasizes his manifest presence, not only his omnipresence. Let's talk about the omnipresence. Um, most Christians know the omnis. God is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. Uh, he is omni what? Potent. Omnipotent. I just seen if you're listening. Okay, he's omnipotent. He's omnipresent, and he is, uh, huh? <laughs> Omniscient, thank you, thank you. That's the one I couldn't come up with. Okay, but here's, here's what we're saying. When we talk about God's presence being inescapable, that he is everywhere present, what we're saying is God dwells in all space and time, at every point of space and time, with the entirety of his being. God is everywhere present, and yet we're not pantheist because God is personal. But God dwells in every point of space with the entirety of his being. The immensity of God also figures in with the omnipresence of God that he fills all that is. But there's a difference between the presence of God that way and the presence of God toward his people there is something called the covenantal presence of God scripture is more concerned with his presence manifested in relationship and redemption and although these divine realities are not at odds the biblical story does turn on God's being manifest with his people in Eden uh, with Abraham during his life, and as I said, uh, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Joseph, with his people in the Exodus, with his people at tabernacle and temple, at the incarnation of Christ, at the new temple, the church is the body of Christ, and ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth, God will dwell with us. There is something in the heart of God that makes him desire and it's out of his own being. It's not anything he needs, but we need it. But he desires to be and dwell with his people. He wants to know us. He has chosen to do that, but not to fill himself up, but rather to fill us up with himself. The story of Scripture begins and ends with the presence of God. The very opening chapters of the Bible are eschatological. What does that mean? It means they point to an ultimate hope. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, in the presence of God, they dwelt in the garden, and in the cool of the day, God would come and walk with his creatures. God would somehow manifest himself in the garden of Eden and have deep fellowship with the creatures until what happened? Sin happened. And as a result of sin, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden after receiving the curses of sin. 
Though uh, the indication of the narrative is God provided animal skins to cover their nakedness, indicating some thought of killing an animal, some thought of atonement, some thought of uh, salvation. But they were expelled from the sanctuary of God's presence in Eden. And so the scripture begins with the presence of God in the garden where the creator and his image bearers related with great intimacy. But when we fast forward to the very end of the Bible, we see a very similar picture, but on a much larger scale. The garden, temple of God, has now become the city of God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven on earth. And so we begin with the garden temple of God. We end with the city temple of God coming to earth where God's presence is everywhere. Read uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. You'll see it in the new heavens and the new earth. We will know him face to face. Though we see through, through glass darkly now, we will then know him as it were face to face. There will be a intimacy with God present in the eschaton, or the new heavens, and the new earth. And so the presence of God sort of envelops, or is an inclusio, around the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible, and the whole rest of the Bible is God's passionate pursuit to be present with and dwell with the people he has selected for himself. The Bible makes more sense then when you pick it up and open it, you read you know, like the first five books and you get to Leviticus and you go, what in the world? Then you get to Numbers, I don't know. Then you get to Deuteronomy, I thought we already said this. Then you go through the hysterical books or the historical books. Then you look at uh, the middle of your Bible, which are the writings in Hebrew, the poetry section. You get to Job, that's an amazing book. And then you go through the rest of the Psalter, and uh, Ecclesiastes is thrown in for a little spice. Proverbs has a lot of wisdom. Then you get to the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets. Then you get to the New Testament. All of it flows with this theme of the presence of God. Richard Pratt in seminary, who was my Old Testament uh, professor and good friend, often used to say that the Bible is really about three things. It's about the seed... It's about presence, and it's about dominion. It's about the seed, multiplying the seed. God told Adam and Eve to do that in the garden. Secondly, it's about presence, all done in the context of God's mediated and manifested presence. And finally, dominion. Eventually, the garden becomes the city. That indicates cultivation and development, the so-called cultural mandate that some people struggle with. I don't. I think it's there. Wrote a paper on it. And uh, it's a beautiful concept. But let's look at this. When we get to the end of the Bible, we see God dwelling with man. In the book of Revelation, Eden has returned and expanded into the new heaven and the new earth where all of God's people enjoy his presence eternally. As David says, there is joy in the presence of the Lord forever. That's what joy is, being with him in an unmediated sense, face to face as it were. Humanity's mission and the presence of God are inseparable. 
God gave man and woman purpose. They're to be fruitful and multiply in order to fill the earth. They are to subdue it and have dominion over it. And Adam and Eve are to do this in Eden, the epicenter of God's relational presence and creation. As the first couple's family expands, so too will the garden's borders, and with it, God's presence. Likewise, God's presence was to spread throughout the rest of the earth through Adam and Eve's exercising dominion. But sin has entered the picture. We have no idea the repercussions of the fall. Just as we have very little idea of this whole coronavirus, we're working daily to try and understand it, to try to figure it out, and it's one of those things that we'll know more about down the road. But to even go back beyond that, we have no idea the repercussions of the fall and the entrance of sin into God's good creation. We do know this, creation itself groans under the curse upon the earth because of man's sin. There's a problem. Adam and Eve replace blessings for curses when they eat the forbidden fruit. These curses cut right to the heart of who they are and what they were made to do, their very purpose, their very raison d'etre. For Eve, pain overwhelms the promise of a people. There's pain in childbirth in the multiplication of the seed. But there's also for Adam perspiration and sweat and thorns that will imbe impede the promise of place. Sin hinders everything now, especially man's experience of the presence of God. Because of their disobedience, Adam and Eve are now exiles. They live east of Eden, and so do we. And their mission is in shambles as they stand outside of Eden. Eden. The presence they, uh, of God they once knew freely is no longer free. God, who being holy in and of himself, cannot dwell with the presence of sin. But God doesn't stop with the fall of Adam and Eve. He enters into covenant relationships. His covenants bring his presence back to his people. I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you shall know me. What a wonderful promise. To overcome God's, I mean, uh, in, in grace, God steps in to pay the price. To overcome our sin and ensure his purposes. The creator ultimately becomes the covenant redeemer. Through his covenant promises, the Lord restores what Adam failed to do. God makes a people and a place through the covenant, all the while keeping his promises to humanity. This is big picture stuff, okay? This is called, for those of you who want a technical name for it, biblical theology. It is tracing a theme in Scripture diachronically, that is through time, all the way from Genesis to the book of Revelation. So we're going to do it this morning. We're going to go in every book of the Bible and show you. No, we're not going to do that. We'd be here for weeks. But that is the theme of Scripture, Sin hinders everything, and yet God, in his love and graciousness, does all of this so he can be our God and we can be his people. And at the very heart of the covenant, then, is a relationship, one that is decidedly on God's terms. God enters into creation to create a people and a place for his presence. And so the covenant is, is as the Lord declares at Sinai, 
I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. You see the covenant promises? God's promise to dwell among his people. That's what's going to make heaven, heaven. That's why in my better moments I have no fear of death. Uh, I don't particularly like the process of dying, but I have no fear of death. Uh, as Woody Allen used to say, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But I do think, why do, because absence from the body is presence with who? The Lord. The moment I die, I'm going to be in the presence of the one who loved me and gave himself for me more than anybody could ever love me or give themselves for me. And so that's glorious to think about. We're uh, forging with vigor toward the end. The presence of God is both the means and the end of redemption. As Christians, we talk a lot about the presence of God, but we seldom look to the Bible to see exactly what it is. And when we do, we find that it is first and foremost a theme on which the whole story of Scripture hinges. If we read our Bibles through, we begin to see a twofold pattern. First, the Bible makes clear that the presence of God is a central goal to God's redemptive mission. All of God's work ends with the Lord dwelling with man. And second, the presence of God is not only an objective or a goal, it is also the means by which the redemptive mission is fulfilled. God writes himself, as it were, into his own story to bring about salvation. To understand our Bibles and how it changes us, we need to know God's presence. And so the presence of God finds its greatest expression in Emmanuel, God with us. That was uh, George Whitfield's favorite name for Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. In the Hebrew, Emmanuel means us or we, and El means God, God with us. God himself comes to save. We just have been looking at that all through the Christmas season. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered human history to give his life a ransom for many. And in his grace, God buys us back in the most unimaginable way possible. God in Christ becomes a man walking among humanity, died, lived, and died for his people, was resurrected, and in this merciful act, Christ reconciles us to himself and reopens access to the Father so that those who were once exiled from his presence may now with boldness enter and draw near to God again. The purposes of the church are tied to the presence of God. The presence of God has massive implications for the way we understand ecclesiology or that is the doctrine of the church the new testament calls the church a temple for a reason through this image we see that the community of christ is in this time of waiting upon the return of christ the instrument the lord uses to disseminate or mediate his presence to a lost and sinful world Accordingly, the church has two clear purposes. 
The church works within itself for sanctification of its members to prepare a people for God's present and future presence, but the church also works outside of itself externally to share the gospel so that many uh, of the lost may enjoy God's presence now and forever as well. That is our distinctive. God is with us. He is present. To be joyful as a Christian is to know the intimacy of God's presence. Sometimes we, we like to think of God almost as a, a magic genie from time to time and we sort of put him on the shelf until something happens either that we really want or something we can't get ourselves out of or we're struggling with. The problem is real and relationships don't work this way, especially with God. The Lord overall will not be left on the shelf. Instead, Scripture is clear that all of life, especially the gospel life, is about being in God's relational presence. Yes, God is omnipresent. But there is an intensification of his presence among his people. Um, and so that itself is astounding. Instead, Scripture is clear that all of life is about being in God's relational presence. That is why David claims the following. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I, I, I don't often associate, I, I think there's enough of uh, legalism still in me, there's enough of fundamentalism in the worst case still in me to think that heaven is going to be pleasurable. Because <laughs> I always associate pleasure, pleasure with what? You know, feasting and reveling and having fun and you know there's got to be something wrong with if you're enjoying you know that's what uh Mencken said about Christians is they're scared to death somebody somewhere is enjoying themselves and so <laughs> what I mean to say by that is there is a richness of pleasure because that's what we're made for that's what stirs us that that is our heart of hearts and so there's joy. Joy is, is never conditional, biblically speaking. So what is the takeaway from what we've thought about this morning? We sort of started at the deep end of the pool talking about the aseity of God. There's nothing in God that would ever make him want to do this or no need or anything. He just does it because it's his nature. And it is his nature to move out of himself and extend the circle of the dance of the Trinity to encompass creatures he has made for himself to create a world, to create a universe, to display the glory, to enjoy his glory more and more. That should move us. Mystery should always move you to worship. Mystery which is something we can't quite wrap our minds around, we cannot get a handle on, shouldn't confuse you, it shouldn't make you frustrated. We're finite, we can't grasp the infinite, we're sinners, we can't grasp the holy. Get real. But mystery should drive us to our knees, lost in wonder, love, and praise. The presence of God, knowing that when we come together on Sunday morning, this is why you need to come to church. 
you know, given the situation as it is, there's a limitation upon this, which is smart and wise. But the reason why we need to be together as God's people, why? Because God manifests His presence in His people. There is a special presence of God when God's people gather. Two or three in my name, the Scripture says, there I am among them also. There's a sense in which the presence of God is here and rich and accessible to God's people. Therefore, coming together to worship is not some have-to kind of thing. You should be hungry, hungry, starving, as it were, for the presence of God with me. And the whole concept of revival. Revival, I like. Revivalism, I don't. But revival is when God intensifies the operations of the Holy Spirit to make God's presence among His people palpable, almost visceral, where there are experiences. If you read Jonathan Edwards on the awakening uh, and some of what he had to say, it's amazing. There's a sense. And I pray, I pray often for a revival for renewal, for spiritual renewal, that God would come among His people and we would begin to be so hungry for His presence that we don't read the Bible to check it off the list so we won't feel so bad about ourselves. We'll read the Bible because we're hungry for His presence, for His intimacy to connect with Him. And so... Those things are things we can take home with us. When we spend time in the Word, God makes His presence known through the Scriptures. Uh, all of that is the, is the sea in which we swim as believers. It is our context. The ultimate context for us is the relational presence of God. And it is so free and accessible because the entry into it and remaining in it is grace. It's never because we deserve. How could I ever say that a God like I understand God to be would ever owe me a single thing? He owes me nothing but judgment. But in His kindness and grace, He has moved toward me, a sinner, and delivered me and lets me know Him. <laughs> Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let not the powerful man glory in his powers let us glory in this Jeremiah says that the Lord knows me and I know him let us pray Heavenly Father we thank you for the truth of what we have looked at today there is so much here more than could be said in a sermon more than could be said in a hundred sermons but we pray that we caught something of a glimpse of this great theme, biblical theme of the presence of God. And we pray that as we continue to meet together as your people, you would manifest your presence among us redemptively. And we look forward to the day when we will enjoy you face to face forever. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.